This is The Guardian. Today, a million and a half people have been forced to escape their homes in Ukraine. How they're feeling and how Europe is responding to the crisis. At the border between Ukraine and Hungary, Lucy Hoff has been speaking to people who've had to abandon their homes since President Putin declared war 13 days ago. Yeah, well, we woke up at five in the morning because there were planes like over the sky and my first thought was to call my mom. And she was crying because they bombed the airport. Then we quickly like woke up to get uh, supplies like water and some food. Uh, and as we were coming back, uh, the first bombs fell on Ivano-Frankivsk. Katia, who lives in Kyiv with her British partner Peter, was on holiday in western Ukraine when the invasion began. We heard them, five explosions, and we had to make a snap decision at that moment whether or not we were going to leave. Our main issues right now are just getting to a point of safety. After that, we don't know. The uncertainty they face now is shared by 1.5 million people who've escaped Ukraine over the first two weeks of this war, as The Guardian's Annie Kelly has been reporting. We are in the middle of an absolute humanitarian catastrophe, uh, with up to four million people expected or estimated to be fleeing Ukraine in the coming weeks and months. The figures are, they're just staggering and just going up by hundreds of thousands every day. Since World War II, there hasn't been a refugee crisis that's developed so quickly. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, the people escaping Ukraine. Lorenzo Tondo, you're in Poland now and you've been reporting from the border of Ukraine. Can you tell me where you've been and what the atmosphere has been like? I've been in Przeszmiel, uh, which is the main crossing point for Ukrainian refugees. Yeah, my name is Lorenzo, I come from Italy. And uh, if you stand right in front of platform four of the railway station, you can get a sense of what is going on in Ukraine these days. Did you walk for... Uh... Or did you come with a car? Uh, uh, we walked two days. Two days? And you left the house? Everything. Uh, uh, very quick. Uh, this is a train station where thousands of Ukrainian refugees are getting off uh, the trains arriving from Ukraine. And you have uh, three children? Yes. Okay. And the majority of them are women and children. And they are, they are worried about their fathers and husbands left to fight. fight. To fight. Uh, your husband too. Yes. And you, you, Chirkisi, And that like train off. station that you're describing, the train station that you were at, people might have seen it on the TV. It's this grand white building and I've seen images there of long tables of food that's been donated and what looks like a sort of organised chaos that there's 
this kind of embrace as people get off the train, they're being handed these packages of food. I wonder if you can give me a bit of a sense of of the atmosphere there. Yeah, it's. It, it, I mean, it's. It's. I must say, it's all self-organized in reality. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of volunteers working for NGOs and charities who are offering and distributing food, uh, tea, blankets, toys, even toys. And the situation is uh, is uh, is really exploding. I mean, Poland is struggling, so you know you can see all these uh, makeshift camps packed with with families, blankets everywhere, and bags everywhere. But it's I mean they're just running out of the space. Uh, Poland had made the preparation for weeks. Uh, back in January, uh, the Polish Interior Ministry said they had to be prepared for a wave up to one million of refugees. And many people thought it was exaggerating. Well, the truth is that an average of 80,000 Ukrainian refugees are entering Poland each day. Wow. And it's just like really hard to imagine that it could get worse than that. Annie Kelly, you've spent years reporting on refugee crises across the world. And now here we are in yet another. And the number of people fleeing is just unbelievable, isn't it? Uh, The UN is saying that what we could be witnessing right now is the largest refugee crisis this century. And in terms of the, the speed of this displacement, it's hard to find a precedent in kind of modern times. When they arrive at those borders, you know, that's kind of step one. But then what happens on the other side? So Ukrainians have been told that they don't need to show paperwork. They don't need to have any official documentation with them. They will just be received by Poland, Hungary, Moldova, Slovakia, Romania. All of these countries have said that they will take anyone that needs sanctuary. And once they get over the border, they are entirely dependent on the kindness of strangers. I mean, there are huge volunteer armies that have been mobilized along all of these borders. Thousands and thousands of Polish families that are offering to host Ukrainian refugees, that are driving Ukrainian refugees from the border into neighboring countries to be united with family members. It has been one of the most extraordinary things about the last week, I think, this extraordinary show of humanity. Late last week, I called Peter and Katia, who we'd last heard from on the Ukraine-Hungary border. I wanted to see how they're doing. Hello, Peter. Hello. Hi, Hannah. Um, Is Katia with you? Yes, hi. I'm here. Oh, hello. Hello, Katia. I'm Hannah. Hi, nice to meet you. Yes, you too. And whereabouts are you staying? Uh, well, right now we are in uh, Budapest in Hungary. Uh, we are staying in the apartment houses that were offered to us uh, uh, by Peter's employee. So we are um, very lucky and very privileged uh, to have a place to stay and uh, we, we are safe. And the guy on the desk, when we were checking into these apartments, his first question was, I need to take a, a permanent address for you. Where do you live? And the question just seemed like a nonsense. It's, do we write down the apartment block that may not be there anymore? Do we write down 
the house in the UK that we may not be able to live in. What do we say? And of course, you had to leave Ukraine very quickly. What were you able to take with you and what have you left behind? Well, we are from Kiev. However, uh, two weeks before the war has started, uh, we've decided on a little vacation uh, around Ukraine. Uh, so we basically like packed uh, just two suitcases full of uh, fairly irrelevant stuff. So that's uh, all we had, you know. Um, yeah, so I uh, said goodbye to all of my things. I don't care about that anymore. It doesn't matter. I'm just hoping to come back to see people, not not the things. Mm. So tell me about your journey then to the border of Hungary. What was that like? Well, I think it was uh, like day five. Our landlord, you know, who was uh, giving us the apartment in Western Ukraine for a vacation, he came in and he said, I think that you guys need to leave because, yeah, just, yeah, just how important were the bombings in Kharkiv and Kiev. And uh, one of his colleagues, uh, she was going to Hungary and he said that here's a chance, you should take it. So we got about an hour's sleep, I think, and drove with her across the mountains, through the snow. Uh, The queue at the border for us was much shorter than it is for most people elsewhere. It was a mere 500 meters. Still took several hours to get through. Once we were over that border, we expected to find something on the other side. And there is nothing. It's just open fields. So once we were out the car, what do we do? And we were very lucky. We were stood at a bus stop in this dead town, every shop was boarded up and shut down. And a guy, wonderful guy named Andre, drove up and just saw we were there with suitcases and said, where are you going? What do you need to do? And we owe him an awful lot. I mean, it's it must have been incredibly stressful. And I'm wondering, for you, Katya, as somebody who's grown up in Ukraine, how did it feel knowing that you were leaving and you don't know when or if you'll be coming back? As soon as we crossed the border, my, my first thought is that I want to go back. You know, I'm, I'm very lucky that I'm alive and I got out. But um, I'm very nervous because, you know, once you feel safe, you realise other people are not. Uh, my mom, she didn't leave our hometown and uh, she's not planning to leave. How, how does that make you feel? Have you tried to convince her to to leave and maybe uh, come stay I, with you? I, I did try, but I also understand her position, our neighbour. She is 86 years old and she has dementia. And her kids, actually, they live in Russia. And uh, my mom, she said what kind of person she would be if she abandons a person with dementia without food and water. So I, I understand why she has decided to stay. And can you can you give me a sense of where your hometown is in the country and what the situation has been there in terms of the conflict? We're almost like center north and my hometown has been bombed twice by, by Belarus already. Yesterday night, they were trying to bomb a military base, but 
they missed, they bombed a hospital and a couple of houses, and they bombed a maternity home, like uh, where the babies are born. And uh, it, it's um, where my mom gave birth to me 24 years ago. And today in the morning, they bombed a school. That's the school that has a shelter underneath. And how often are you able to talk to your mum at the moment? Um, I'm trying to check up on her as much as I can. Uh, So we talk twice a day in the morning and evening. Lorenzo, there are tens of thousands of international students studying in Ukraine, as well as other people who are living and working there, many of them from India, from across Africa, from the Middle East. And there have been reports, and it's something that you've written about, that at the border, they're not getting that warm embrace um, that we spoke about, that so many Ukrainian nationals are being met with. What have you seen on the Polish border? Last week, uh, just a hundred meters from my apartment here, uh, dozens of Polish nationalists uh, gathered near the, this train station and attempted to attack refugees from Middle East and Africa who have left Ukraine like the others. Uh, many of these asylum seekers also told me about the violence and racial abuses they have been through on the Ukrainian side while fleeing the country. And I met this woman, um, Sara, the young woman from Egypt. I think she's 22 years old. Uh, I mean, she was really tired. We walked for two days, 60 kilometers. And she was a student at university in Kiev. They were taking only the Ukrainians in buses. And while waiting to cross the border with Poland, uh, Ukrainian authorities told them to go back in the line. They were pushing us in a bad way. They, like, pushing us by force to the back. They told us to walk. And it's really sad that these people are fleeing the same war but are not perceived as victims just because, you know, the color of their skin or their religion. Can you tell us uh, what happened, basically? Uh, Sarah is also one of the witnesses at this, this train station near the border with Ukraine watching these nationalists attacking her and attacking other people. The African boy is from Nigeria. He, he told us that he was just went inside to buy food, some food for him, and they were not letting him go inside. Then they, they were just yelling at us, shouting. They said, go back to your country. At the beginning, I didn't say anything. Second time, he shouted so, like, in a bad way, like, what is wrong with you? And uh, at some point, she actually told them to fuck off. So I told him that word. <laughs> and you've described that the Ukrainian border control in some cases and these nationalists at the Polish border are carrying out these attacks on people. What have the Polish authorities and the Ukrainian government been saying about that? Well, the uh, Ukrainian foreign ministry, I think a few days ago, you know, urged uh, the border guards uh, to actually assure the same treatment to all the people who are leaving the country or fleeing from the conflict. As for the Polish authorities, actually the Polish authorities told 
the press and local media that uh, they fear that there is uh, a campaign of uh, disinformation. According to police reports, there are a lot of Facebook groups connected and linked to the far right uh, that are spreading fake news about refugees from the Middle East and from Africa who, according to these groups, uh, are committing crimes here in Poland, which is totally false. I think uh, it's a problem also of this right-wing government, uh, which has been spreading this rhetoric about migrants uh, invading Europe uh, Throughout last winter, you were at the same border on the eastern side of the country, reporting that refugees from across the Middle East were getting pushed back by patrolling officers. How does the way they were treated compared to what you've seen in the same area over the past week or so? I was there in this village in Poland at the border with Ukraine and I was watching Polish soldiers distributing food, tea, water, and smiles uh, to Ukrainians. And I couldn't help but think that this is the same border force which for months, a short distance north, along the same eastern border, has been violently pushing back asylum seekers from Syria and Iraqi and Afghans to, to Belarus. At that time, uh, the Middle Eastern asylum seekers attempting to enter Poland numbered only a few thousand. Here today, between 50,000 and 80,000 of Ukrainians are arriving every day. And it's not a political problem. And I remember, I remember this Polish policeman in particular talking kindly to a Ukrainian woman in tears. And I couldn't help but think about this, this other young woman from Syria, whom I met last December in, uh, in a makeshift dormitory in Bruzgi, in Belarus. And I couldn't help but think that, this, that the Syrian woman can only dream of receiving a fraction of that attention. With political will, I'm sure Poland could have resolved the humanitarian crisis at the Belarusian border in a few days. Annie, as someone who's reported on the refugee crisis in Europe for some time, has it been in any way surprising for you to see this as well? I mean, after all, these are countries on the border of Ukraine that have gone to great lengths to keep refugees from places like Iraq and Syria out. And The Guardian reported just in December that EU members, including Poland and Hungary, were spending hundreds of millions of euros on surveillance technology along their borders to deter migrants from crossing. Why is it that Ukrainian refugees are receiving such different treatment from that? You know, I think there has been a lot of talk about whether the warm reception being given to Ukrainian nationals along those neighbouring borders has been because there are huge Ukrainian diaspora in all of those countries. There has always been a big flow across those borders. There are many cultural, linguistic, historical connections. And I think understanding those connections goes some way to explaining this kind of open door policy that we've seen over the last week. Entirely. Tens of thousands of people have tried to uh, flee the city. There will be many more. There has been some particularly nasty rhetoric. But this isn't a 
place, with all due respect, um, you know, like Iraq or Afghanistan. That Talking about how these refugees are like us, you know, that Europe doesn't need to fear these kind of refugees. You know, this is a relatively civilized, uh, relatively European, I have to choose those words carefully too. Only three days before the invasion, the UNHCR put out quite an extraordinary statement condemning violence and escalating human rights abuses against refugees and asylum seekers from other countries like Syria, Iraq, on Europe's borders. And, you know, in that statement, they talked about people on flimsy life rafts being pushed back into dangerous waters, of people even being pushed into the sea, of people being stripped naked and pushed back over freezing borders. Um, I mean, it's just, you know, really, really awful dehumanizing stuff and you can't help but wonder what is going to happen to millions of other refugees and asylum seekers that are stuck in the most horrendous frightening situations at Europe's other borders because you know European states will have invested so much in helping and supporting Ukrainians rightfully so yeah The European Union has announced something extra to help people fleeing Ukraine. It's called a Temporary Protection Directive, and it'll allow them to stay in EU states for up to three years and work and access healthcare and education without having to apply through the usual asylum-seeking channels. Now, EU officials said at first that anyone leaving Ukraine, even non-nationals, would be eligible for it. But now they've decided it'll only be for Ukrainian nationals, which will affect people like Peter, because he's from the UK. We don't know if we're staying in Hungary. We certainly didn't intend to. This was just the first opportunity and closest location that we could come to. Whether we have to settle here or not is still up in the air. My aim would be to go to the UK. But we have been facing obstacle after obstacle trying to get through this particular situation. And our experience with the visa application centres and the UK Visa and Immigration Authority shows that they don't know what's happening either. And from day to day, the government is changing this legislation, but not got to go as far as European countries in waiving the visas entirely, which just is creating chaos. Katya, very kindly on the behalf of the EU, is allowed to remain in countries in the EU for up to three years and work under this open asylum scheme. Because of the objective facts of Brexit, I can't remain in a country like this for more longer than 90 days unless I seek employment. But my leave to remain in Ukraine is contingent on me being employed in Ukraine. So if I do that, I'm cut out of Ukraine in the future. In the meantime, I'm allowed to live and work in the UK. But if Katya were to travel with me now on the plane before her paperwork's in order, Like many Ukrainians, she could be, worst case, removed from the country and sent back by herself. And that's just not an option. And Katya, what are you hoping for? Right now, I am not looking, you know, for like a refugee status. I'm not looking for any extra money but my salary, you know, I, I, I don't want like anybody's job. I'm, I don't want to take anybody's place. All, all I want is just to get to, cause I don't have my, my home right now. I just want to get to a home of my 
a boyfriend where I'll just feel safe. Coming up, Katya, like many other Ukrainians who've been displaced, wonders whether she'll ever get to go home again. Hello, Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland here. I now have my own US politics podcast, which is, helpfully, called Politics Weekly America. So if you want to hear my interviews with politicians like Hillary Clinton or expert analysis from Guardian journalists and the latest news from Washington, D.C. and beyond, you should subscribe. To do that, just type Politics Weekly America into Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be there every Friday. Annie Kelly, given the scale of this crisis already, what else might the EU or NATO do to help these refugees? I think the human rights organisations are calling on the support and solidarity that's being shown to Ukrainian nationals to be extended to everyone trying to flee Ukraine who at the moment will have to go through normal asylum routes. Obviously, the UK could do a lot more. It said it will take up to 200, or it expects it could take up to 200,000 people through the measures that the UK government has announced. But they're certainly not talking about waiving visas or any of those other quite extraordinary measures outlined in the Temporary Protection Directive. Um, But I mean, when you had, you know, an immigration minister in a now deleted tweet suggesting that Ukrainians could, you know, come to the UK and pick fruit. It's it's hardly matching the the enormous generosity and welcome that we've seen um, mm. other European countries extend to those fleeing Ukraine. And Katya, as you look ahead over the next few days, next few weeks, what are you hoping for? Uh, my mom, my mom, she says, you know, because you're out, you need to start planning for yourself because even if it is over soon, uh, the consequences of what has happened will affect Ukraine for years and years to come. So she says, I need to start planning like a life elsewhere. However, I can't even think about that. Like, my whole life, it's been just only me and my mom. She's a teacher. We were never rich at all. There were times when we really were almost starving because the salaries are not big. And all my life, all I was doing, like my, my work is to get enough money so I can provide for my mom and pay her back for everything she's done to me when I was growing up. This is like now all shattered and it breaks my heart. And when you speak to your mom about that, what is she saying to you? She she is uh, my hero because uh, she's staying so courageous and uh, she tells me that um, everything's going to be okay and we're going to see each other soon. In fact, uh, it's, uh, it's her birthday on the 15th of March coming soon and that's like our biggest dream when we talk is that we can reunite for my mom's birthday but also she just says that like if it's written you know in her fate that she is supposed to die in Zhitomir she says if that's what's supposed to happen 
that's what's gonna happen. But but I really I really hope that it's not the case. You know, this is not uh, written in the fate of my mom. I beg you, we can change that. It it doesn't have to happen. Thank you to Katia Zabello, Peter Cribley, Lorenzo Tondo, Annie Kelly and Lucy Hoff. This episode was produced by Rose de la Rabiti and sound designed by Axel Cucutier. The executive producers are Maithili Rao and Phil Maynard. And while I've got you, there's a new Guardian podcast I want to recommend, Politics Weekly America. It's presented by Jonathan Friedland, who's a brilliant columnist and former Washington correspondent. And there are new episodes out wherever you get your podcasts every Friday. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.